Today's Bible reading is taken from Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. And that can be found on page 1042. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, Because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you. Because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God, in his wisdom, said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge, You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. kind of feel like I need to have some kind of accent up here. So shall I go Scottish this morning? No. That was rubbish. I just have to say blood and love a few times. Have your Bibles open, people. Uh, it is good. Uh, to have your Bibles open while the preacher is speaking. Not because the preacher hopefully will mislead you, uh, but The authority is actually in God's word, uh, and that is where we want you to have your attention uh, as as I speak. Um, As uh, Colin has said, we've come to the end 
of our series through this little bit of Luke's gospel. From the end of chapter 9 to the, uh, the end of chapter 11, we've just been working through, unpacking what we've called the crossroad. The teaching that Jesus gives between chapter 9 and it keeps going through till he arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 19, uh, what it means to follow him, what the life of discipleship looks like. And we've seen things like uh, Jesus' great teaching on mission as he sent the 72 out. Jesus' teaching on the mercy and compassion as he speaks of the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. He spoke of prayer. He spoke of devotion. We had models like Mary sitting at his feet, listening, submitting to his teaching. All of this flows out of Jesus's call to take up the cross and follow. Now, it's pretty full on. If you've been paying attention, hopefully you've felt the, the power of what Jesus is actually calling us to do, what Jesus is actually calling us to give. It's really all in or all out. There's no kind of halfway. There's no kind of a little bit forward and a little bit back and, you know, I'll see how this goes. Jesus says, follow me or don't. You're in or you're out. He calls for a fairly extreme response, but... Who here likes extremists? Who here likes extremists? Uh, we find them pretty uncomfortable, don't we? When I, if I was to do a word association with you about religious extremists this morning, uh, you'd probably come up with words like bigoted, condemning, hypocritical, harmful, hateful. But can I say, it's not just religious extremists that are like this. We all know what this looks like. It's all over our media. But our society, our society is becoming, in the name of tolerance, increasingly intolerant. Whether you're a vegetarian, a vegan, a greenie, a lefty or whatever, we have all sorts of people, all sorts of people pushing, in the name of liberation, more oppression. Let me read to you from a book that was written last year uh, that John Howard, our former Prime Minister, wrote the foreword to. Uh, John Howard had talked about uh, what he called minority, minority fundamentalists. And he says, these modern fundamentalists see themselves as laying siege to oppression, whether in terms of gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation or religion, and they are out to breach its walls in the name of compassion inclusion and equality. After all, who could possibly argue against the imperative to defend the vulnerable, the marginalised and the excluded? Well, who could? But dare to question that imperative and there is a real risk of attracting vitriol and opprobrium from the proponents of compassion. John Howard said there is a sense in which people are so frightened of being accused of being discriminatory or intolerant that they don't speak the common sense view in the community. We live in a society that wrestles with extremes. So what's the answer? Whether you're religious, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a disciple and following Jesus and you don't want to become one of those religious nuts or whatever we are in society and whatever views we hold is the answer to move 
to moderation in everything. It's very English, I know. Uh, moderation in everything. You might remember, I think I shared, when I became a Christian and started going to church, there was a member of my family who said, that's okay, Cameron, but just don't take it too seriously. Don't take it too seriously. Is the answer moderation with Jesus? But if we've listened to Jesus, we don't get that option. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Whoever loses his life, loses her life for my sake, doesn't leave us much room to kind of wriggle, does it? So how do we do it? Is there a way that we can actually take Jesus seriously and not turn into religious bigots? Is there a way of having an identity that doesn't actually seek to oppress and coerce other people, but is actually able to bless. Well, these issues are nothing new. We might think that they're recent arrivals in our culture, but they were there in Jesus's time, and uh, he's going to give us some answers. Now, Sesame Street time, our letter of the day is D. Uh, Okay, I've got four Ds for you. Our number is four. We've got dinner. We've got diagnosis. We have distortion and deliverance. So you'll know where I'm going. You'll know roughly how long you've got to put up with this for. Uh, so let's dive into dinner and Luke eleven thirty-seven. Jesus has been teaching. And amongst the crowds, obviously, there have been some Pharisees who are there. And one of them, I think, likes what he hears. And so he goes up to Jesus as the preacher and he says, hey, preacher, I'd like to explore this further. What about you come round to my place for lunch? Now, lunch is a big deal, particularly in that culture. Uh, It's a sign of acceptance. So obviously the Pharisees liking what they hear. They probably heard Jesus in verse 29 say, this is a wicked generation. And you can imagine the Pharisees going, yep been saying it for years now this guy this Jesus he agrees so come along Jesus we can find some more common ground we can work this and so the Pharisee invites Jesus to lunch but with his friends as well it's not just one Pharisee and Jesus it's Jesus with a whole lot of Pharisees and some others who Luke calls teachers of the law now The Pharisees in those days, if you're not familiar with Pharisees, that's okay. They're not really around today. We use the phrase uh, to mean a hypocrite, don't we? Oh, he's such a Pharisee. She's such a Pharisee. But in those days, in Jesus's days, a Pharisee, they were the pinnacle of religious respectability. These guys were hardcore. They were committed Jews who had deliberately taken upon themselves. They were a lay organisation. They, they weren't priests or anything like that or Levites. But they had deliberately taken upon themselves the purity demands of the priesthood. And so these guys went above and beyond whatever was expected. These guys were dead set Keen. They had put alongside the Old Testament law all sorts of traditions that allowed them to make sure that they went nowhere near breaking those laws. And they were particularly concerned about purity. You've got the, t- the Pharisees on one hand, you've got the teachers on the law on the other. Now, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees was a lay organisation. 
It was like you know, joining some of our Christian organisations. You can join and become an associate of the Pharisees. But the teachers of the law, they, these guys were the professors. They were the ones, the biblical experts. These were the Bible college lecturers who were paid, set aside to make, uh, make decisions, to make interpretations about how the law uh, was to be interpreted. And so here you have these two groups uh, and Jesus is there for lunch. And Jesus, uh, he picks a fight, doesn't he? He's come into a house of a man who belongs to an organisation who is deliberately, he is he's passionately committed to ritual cleanliness. And what does Jesus do? Well, what doesn't he do? He doesn't wash his hands. He doesn't, and then this isn't hygiene. This isn't mum going, wash your hands before you have lunch. This is much bigger than just hygiene. This is ritual purity. The Pharisees were almost OCD about ritual purity. They were so concerned that they had rules about which parts of the hand and where cleanliness and uncleanliness went. And if the water flowed from above here down, that was okay. But if it flowed from there up, it would contaminate. And if you wash this hand, but then touch that hand, that would contaminate. But then if this clean hand touched your head, that's okay. But if it, they had rules about what you could do about everything. And Jesus, Jesus is no fool. He goes in and he sits down to have lunch, having walked past all the apparatus for washing. Jesus is picking a fight. And the Pharisee is just astounded. This guy that he thought was on the same page, this, this Jesus, I thought he would agree with me. Jesus is picking a fight to make a point. That brings us to our second point in the diagnosis. Jesus is wanting to confront what is at the heart of the problem with religion. And not just religion of ancient Judaism, but religion with a capital R today, and also the religion of our social movements that we see. Jesus is wanting to confront what's actually at the heart of what turns us into proud, hateful, bigoted, oppressive hypocrites. Jesus is putting his stethoscope up and getting to the heart of the issue because the Pharisee, the Pharisee had made a diagnosis of the problem and the problem was everyone else. The problem was outside and so the solution was external. I need to keep you unclean masses at bay I need to have ritual purity laws about how I can interact with you as minimum as possible while actually maintaining my ritual purity. I can stand back and I can condemn. 1129, this is a wicked generation. And the Pharisees all said, Amen. They see that the problem is outside and so the solution is outside and it led them to segregate one, one of the possible meanings of the, the name Pharisee actually means separatist, those who had withdrawn, those who'd backed off. These guys were separate, they had regulated life, and they sought to avoid contamination because actually you were the problem. 
You unclean masses, you are the problem. And me, happy little Pharisee, I need to keep myself pure. Jesus wants to confront that. Because if I start thinking, if I'm the Pharisee and you're the unwashed masses, what does that mean? I, I inevitably end up looking down on you. Because you know, I'm closer to God than you. I'm more switched on than you. I inevitably start condemning. And the Pharisees were notorious for this. Jesus, Jesus wants to correct it. So verse 39. The Lord said to this astounded Pharisee, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? Don't invite Jesus for lunch. That's the, you know. Interesting, isn't it? He just pulls out both barrels. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside, which you recognize as needs to be cleaned, make the inside also? So if the outside's got an issue, the inside's got an issue, isn't it? He's saying your rituals, Pharisee, cannot touch the heart. You see the problem as outside, but the problem is actually inside. The problem is actually internal, and so the solution must be internal. Jesus tells them if they sort out the inside, the external will actually look after itself. It's kind of like chicken pox. Most of us have had chicken pox. We've all seen it, you know, the spots that come out all over you. Imagine you went along to the doctor and the doctor said, I know what to do about this. Pulls out the packet of Band-Aids and just starts putting a Band-Aid on each spot. You'd just be going, it's ridiculous. But Jesus is saying that's what the Pharisees are doing. They're so concerned with the externals. They've got all these rules about what they do. But these rules are like band-aids on the chicken pox. They cannot touch the virus that makes the heart unclean. Jesus, Jesus now goes on the attack. Six times he pronounces woe, not threats, but deep grief. Woe to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because they have produced a form of biblical faith that is so twisted, so distorted, that it is unrecognisable. Let's go there. Distortions. We're not going to deal with the six all in order. I've grouped some of them together because they really do kind of overlap. But the Pharisees in their distortions, they have derailed the law of God. Because God had given the law to his people in order that they might know how to live as his people. So if you know your Bibles and you know the ancient, uh, you know, what happened back in the Exodus, okay? What does God do? He saves his people. He redeems them out of slavery in Egypt. He takes them into the Sinai Desert to Mount Sinai and then he gives them the law. He doesn't say to them in Egypt, I'll give you the law. If you behave well enough, if you achieve this standard up to a certain percentage, perhaps maybe an 80% pass mark, perhaps, you know, on the Ten Commandments, eight out of ten, okay, that's not bad. Uh, if you do that, I'll come and save you. He doesn't do that at all, does he? By his grace, 
because of his faithfulness to his promises, he saves them. He gives them the law and he says, this is how now you live as my people who are saved by grace. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had turned this guide to life in the kingdom of grace into the entry examination that if you're good enough, God might love you. To the point where they sat down and they broke up their herbs. So you do some cooking last night, you go out to the garden. I made a roast lamb the other day, got some rosemary, you know, a hundred leaves on that stem. You meticulously take off ten there for God. You know, these guys were hardcore. But if you're going to keep the law of God, you have to find a way to get around it. It's just too hard. And so these guys were so obsessed with the nitty gritty that Jesus says, you've forgotten about justice and about the love of God. You've forgotten about these big things and you've found your ways around them. Remember the question that the lawyer, the teacher of the law asked Jesus when Jesus told him to love his neighbor as himself? Ah, ah, I heard this one, Jesus. I know how to get around this. But who is my neighbor? They did this all the time. They had their little loopholes, their way of actually being selective about which bits they had to keep and which bits they didn't. And Jesus says, whoa. When he fires up on the teachers of the law, he says, you guys create all sorts of regulations that for the outsider, for the uninitiated, they crush them. It's just too hard. But for the insider, you know the tricks. You know the ways around it. You know how to avoid its force. And so the Bible says, honour your father and mother. That means you provide for them materially if there's a need. Ah, but they invented this rule called uh, Corban. So if I say whatever mum and dad I was going to give to you, I'm going to give to God. I don't have to give mum and dad any support. And the interesting thing is they'd actually worked out a way of actually getting around that vow that you'd made to God to give that stuff there. So you didn't actually have to give anything to God and you could just duck supporting your parents. They found all sorts of ways, but you had to be an insider to know this. There was all sorts of rules. Look at Matthew chapter 5 about which oaths were binding. If you swear by the altar, it's different than if you swear by the gift on the altar. One of those binds and one of those doesn't. How's the average person meant to know this? And so Jesus says, you crush them. You make God's law oppressive. But you yourself find the way around it. My apologies to any lawyers. It's unbearable for some, but you you make it easy. What these guys have done is they have actually... They've taken the V8 of life in the kingdom. You know, we've recently had the supercars up on the North Terrace and all that kind of place. They've taken this incredible power. And instead of putting the high octane fuel of grace, they've pumped water in the tank. They've gutted it. They've taken away the very thing that gave it its power. Because the life that Jesus calls us to, the biblical faith that is presented all through scripture is fueled and empowered by grace and they had gutted it. Which brings us on 
to the next thing. They not only derail the law, but they defame God. Because if it's all of grace, God gets the glory, doesn't he? If it's all of grace, God gets the glory because it's what he does that makes the difference. But because they had actually brought in their own effort and they had made it achievable, they felt they were deserving of praise. So Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees, you love the most important seats in the synagogue and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. You love it when people go, you are so committed. Oh Pharisee, if only I could be half as holy as you. Here, sit up the front. Take the esteem. They rob God of his glory. Not only do they rob God, not only do they defame him, they defy him. This is what we have when Jesus takes on the lawyers about building, building tombs for the prophets, honouring the great teachers of Israel. Jesus says, you're not honouring them. He's effectively saying, your fathers, your forebears, your ancestors, they killed them. And you, you are making sure they stay dead. You have no interest in obeying God's word. Otherwise, they would have accepted Christ. And when they leave this dinner, they go out and they lie in wait and they want to trap him. But the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, you reject every single prophet that came before. Jesus says, you defy God by, by rejecting his word. And as a result... The form of biblical faith that you've got is so twisted that instead of bringing people to God, you drive people away. Woe, he says, you are like unmarked graves. For a Jew to come in close proximity to a dead body would actually make them ritually unclean. Jesus is like, you're, you're dead men in disguise. People will contact you and they think you're going to take them closer to God, but you're actually taking them further away. You're defiling them. You hold yourself up as a model of righteousness, but you actually demonstrate not the power of the kingdom, but how thoroughly you have emasculated that power. He gets into the teaches the law he says woe to you experts in the law you've taken away the key of knowledge it's like there's the gates of heaven and these teachers of the law have snuck up while peter's not looking supposedly flogged the key locked the gate thrown it away they haven't gone in and they're stopping everyone else you people who should be commending jesus you are actually pushing people away it's a pretty stark image, isn't it? This is where religious extremists get us. So how do we actually live a life that doesn't end up here? How do we actually take Jesus seriously and live wholeheartedly for him without looking down on others, without condemning others, without hiding our sin and pretending that we've got it all together, working out which bits Jesus' words to us we can take seriously, the easy ones, the bits that we find naturally 
easier to do and which bits that we can actually explain away. Oh, geez, you actually don't mean that, do you? I remember as a, um, as a teenager in youth group, um, apologies to teenagers in youth group and any members of my family, um, when you started dating, you know, that kind of awkward dating kind of conversation you then have with your growth, your growth group leader, you know, what are you allowed to do and what are you not allowed to do? And you work out, what are you doing? You're building laws. You're building laws. And that's what we did. And we felt okay as long as we didn't... I always found that the laws moved. Did you find that? The laws just slowly edged wider and wider and wider. Okay? It's interesting. We had friends who... uh, They only kissed through glad wrap. How weird was that? (laughs) (laughs) But they, they were achieving righteousness... Glad rap righteousness. We, uh, they're married now. I think at, uh, at the wedding they could do away with the, the, the glad rap. But uh, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. How do we become people who, who actually model grace, who actually show love and compassion? who actually, as Jesus did, can sit with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and not condemn them, but still call them to repentance, who can sit with the the righteous ones, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and confront them. How can we have a life of discipleship, a life of power, that is fueled with the high octane grace of God. Well, Jesus gives us that answer. It's there hidden away in verse 41. Now, you've all got probably NIVs in front of you, okay? This is one time. The NIV is normally a pretty good translation. Uh, the NIV gets this pretty wrong. My NIV in front of me says this for verse 41. He says, As for what is inside, with you, inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. The ESV represents a little bit more closely what the original language, the Greek that Luke was written in. It says, Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean, with you, clean for you. And so you can see the NIV has gone, well, Jesus is talking about cups and bowls, So what he must be talking about is giving the stuff inside the cups and bowls, the food, to to the poor, giving as alms, you know, supporting the poor. So you can see how they've got that. I don't think that's what Jesus is actually saying. The giving of alms was a religious duty that was very familiar with the Pharisees. I think Jesus is picking it up and using it as a word picture, as a metaphor. And he's not talking about what's in the bowl. He's talking about our heart. He's talking about our inner self. He's calling us to sacrificially surrender what is inside of us. Jesus is calling for us to give our hearts. Because our heart in the Bible is not just the center of our emotion, it's the very center of our self. Who we are and what we do comes out of our heart. And so the big question is not what we think, but What do we love? What do we love? Because that will drive your action. Earlier in Luke, Luke 6, 
Jesus says, no tree bears, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man, a good woman brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart. And an evil man, an evil woman brings evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. What the mouth speaks, what the heart is full of. You see that the heart determines. And Jesus says, give as alms, give as an offering to God your heart. J.C. Ryle, who was uh, Bishop of uh, Liverpool, I think, Liverpool, Manchester, one of those places, somewhere in the UK, Sharon would probably know. He said this about this passage. He says, give first the offering of the inward man. Give your heart, your affection, your will to God as the first great alms you bestow. And then all your other actions proceeding from a right heart are an acceptable sacrifice, a clean offering in the sight of God. Give yourself first to the Lord and then he will be pleased with your gifts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength flows out into and your neighbor as yourself. The Pharisees were so hung up on the externals that they missed the internals. Jesus says, get the internals right and the externals will actually look after themselves. And how do you get the internals right? You give your heart, your being, your love over to God. The Pharisees' problem wasn't that they were religious extremists. The Pharisees' problems is they didn't go far enough. They limited God to the outside. They limited God to outward conformity. They turned discipleship into a human project. And it just doesn't work. William Temple, who was an Archbishop of Canterbury, I think, about the same sort of time uh, as J.C. Ryle, he said, if your understanding of God is radically false, then the more devout you are, the worse it will be for you. These guys had missed the very heart of biblical faith, the grace of God to us. And so as they ran really a long way down that road, they were running down the wrong road. And the faith that they presented was so twisted, so deformed, that Jesus pronounces woe. And so as we think about our lives of discipleship, I ask you, not what do you do, not what rosters are you on, but where is your heart? Where is your heart? Jesus doesn't call us just to offer ourselves once at conversion. But what does he say? Take up your cross daily, each and every day. We offer ourselves, to use Jesus' image here, we offer ourselves as arms, our inner self, our inner being, our love, our will, our worship. Have we done it? Do we do it? Or do we look to our outward conformity, to our outward action, and say, I'm okay. That is a road that leads to where the Pharisees and the teachers of law were. They looked to the externals, and they ended up twisted and deformed. 
oppressive, hateful, judgmental, murderers of the author of life. The way Jesus calls us is to give ourselves first to God, to recognise that in Christ we have a status, we have an, an identity, we have an acceptance that is based on his performance, not ours. And so I can't think I'm better than everyone else because I know that Christ had to die for me. I can't think that I've got it all together and I can look down on the rest of you. No, we are all alike in desperate need of grace. That is where we find the V8 high-octane energy fuel that drives the life of discipleship, that breaks, that breaks our heart, that crushes our pride, that transforms us as the gospel is taken deep within us by the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus calls us to give everything. Why? Because he himself, he himself gave us everything. He saw our need. He saw us in the squalor of sin and he gave himself to the end. There's a word that comes up again and again in the gospel. This handed over word. Jesus was handed over. Jesus allowed himself to be handed over into the hands of the soldiers. He gave himself into the hands of the authorities. He gave himself to the authority of Pilate. He gave himself to the nails, to the crown, to the spear, to the cross. And at the end, he gave his life over into his father's hands. We're going to share the Lord's Supper in just a moment. It's a great opportunity to gaze upon the wonders of grace. Yes, it's a little cup of juice. It's bread. But what they represent, what they represent is the heart and soul of the Christian life, the life that Jesus calls us to. So I encourage you, as you reflect on what Jesus calls you to, know that he has done that and more. He has given you himself. And as we share this, we remind ourselves of that fact. I'm going to stop, I'm going to pray, then hand back to Colin, who's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, you call us to give you everything. But we know that as we lose our lives for you and for your sake, that we gain them. We know as we hand ourselves over, we receive ourselves back. We know that as we give up any pretense of our own achievements, that we receive your perfect achievement, your perfect obedience credited to us. 
Father, we ask that by the Holy Spirit you would work your grace in our hearts. Take the truth of the gospel, the wonder of the victory achieved by Christ, his handing over of himself for us. Take that and remake us, reforge us, keep us running on the high-octane fuel of grace so that we might truly live a life that brings you glory in all things. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.